People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Lucy Martin McBride is a practicing internist in Washington, D.C. with two decades of experience. A trusted and recognized voice in patient care, she's also a Bloomberg New Voices Fellow a healthcare educator, mental health advocate, and healthcare disruptor working to increase awareness of the intersection of mental and physical health. We are thrilled to have Dr. McBride on HealthGig today. Lucy, welcome. So happy you could join us. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. We want to begin with just hearing a little bit about you and how you became a doctor. And then we want to talk about your very interesting philosophy as a doctor. But tell us about you. Oh, wow. That's such a luxurious question to be asked. (laughs) Um, Thank you. So I found it funny in high school and college, people came to me with their problems. I realized I really liked listening and caring for people. I love science and math in high school. So then, you know, fast forward to college, I'm an art history major, but a pre-med student. I go into medicine and realize that this is an incredible field where I get to think about people in a very holistic way. And the reason I'm in primary care is because I love thinking about the intersection between mental and physical health, because after all, people are more than just a set of boxes to check. Health is more than just seeing your doctor once a year. Health is about your lived experiences. It's about your past. It's about your present. It's about your biases. It's about your emotional health. It's about how you live your everyday life. And what's really fun, if you will, about being a primary care doctor is that you get to connect the dots between people's emotional health, their mental health, their everyday experiences, and their medical outcomes. And I found over 20 years of seeing patients that you can really start to solve problems and help people advance their health and well-being when you address root causes instead of just symptoms. It's not only the right thing to do, it's the more holistic way of viewing the human condition. So incorporating mental health into the care of physical health. Can you talk a little bit about that and why it's so important? Well, if you think about it this way, it's pretty simple. We all have mental health. It's part of the package of being a human being. We have this organ that sits over our neck that is the creator of all thoughts and feelings. And guess what? Our thoughts and our feelings largely drive our behaviors and our behaviors drive our health outcomes and our medical conditions. And not only that, the way we think and feel and relate to other people, relate to food, alcohol, work, our kids, our partners, you know, those things inform our health just as much as our genetics. Our genetics are important. I always take a family history from people, right? Like people are this kind of complex intersection between genetics and environment, mental and physical. But the point is you cannot opt out of having mental health. Like you can opt out of a feature on your iPhone. You have it. It's whether or not you're addressing it, whether or not you're connecting your mental health to your physical health. And I should say this, you know, mental health and mental illness are different. Just like we have mental health, we have heart health, we have skin health, we have breast health as women. So addressing mental health is the way we help prevent mental illness. It's also the way we help improve physical health. 
That's such a great description. That's so true. Like you said, we talk about brain health, we talk about heart health, we talk about gut health, but we don't really talk about mental health in the sense that it is something to be taken care of, something to think about, something to actually be aware of. So when you're beginning to have anxiety or when you're beginning to have some sort of thing that's kind of offset, yeah, start learning the tools is what you're saying, right? That's right. Again, mental health is part of the human condition. We all have anxiety. In fact, anxiety is built into our DNA. Anxiety is part of the human condition. And anxiety is the way we run from danger and escape threats. Anxiety is part of how we survive. But anxiety, because it's on a continuum, needs to be addressed, particularly in a global pandemic. Um, When we are living our daily lives, we need to calibrate it to what's actually happening in our regular life. We all have anxiety. It's part of the deal. It's whether or not you're connecting that to your health. We also have moods. We all have good days. We have bad days. The question is really, what, if any, are the triggers for having the good day or the bad day? How can you identify the parts of your life that make you feel healthy or make you behave more healthy? You know, we all want to be healthy. Most people know to get eight hours of sleep, drink liters of water a day, get exercise, eat broccoli. My patients and most of the public knows what it means to be healthy. There's often a gap between our best intentions to be healthy, to do the things that our doctors tell us to do, eat healthy, exercise, sleep, meditate, and the execution of those things. And for a lot of people, the gap between intention and execution is that mental health space. For some people, it's shame. For some people, it's fear of failure. For example, my patient this morning who is very overweight you know, it's hard for her to execute on some of the things I want her to do, not because she's not smart, not because she doesn't know how to be healthy, but because she hasn't been successful losing weight really in her life. So it seems like this unachievable gap. So we have to drill down into what's going on. Is it fear? Is it shame? So we can help unlock those feelings and then direct her in the right place. Maybe it's therapy, maybe it's meditation. It's going to depend on the person to help her go from desire to execution, to help move the needle without me lecturing or shaming. Mm-hmm. Right. Because that is not going to solve the problem. Right. And we've learned that in the public health landscape in the last 15 months, that when we shame people, we blame people, we call people COVID idiots for not getting vaccinated. You know, that doesn't actually motivate people to go get the vaccine. You have to meet people where they are. In caring for patients one at a time, when I talk to one of my patients who's addicted to alcohol, I don't say, hey, what's your problem? Don't you know alcohol is bad for you? No, it's finding out what's going on, what are the root causes. You know, for some people, it's simply a chemical addiction and helping them get the help they need, the facts and the information they need to execute on the things they want to do already. I mean, how many doctors are like you? I don't know any doctors that want to help their patients get at the root cause. They want to check out the symptoms and fix what they see on the surface. I mean, did you have special training for that or how did you? No, I mean, one of the things that I'm lucky enough to be able to do is be in a practice where our system is set up so that I have more time with patients. I don't think the problem is the intent of doctors, you know, anyone who goes into primary care medicine is interested in the whole person. They're interested in the relationship with the patient and they want to help people from the ground up. The problem is in this country, our system is really broken. You may have 10 minutes with your doctor. You can barely get undressed to check your heart rate, blood pressure, and abdominal exam, not to mention talk about mood, stress, anxiety, relationship to food, insomnia, you know, all the things that kind of make up our everyday existence. You know, by the time people are 80, they have a doctor for every body part and no one's talking to each other. So 
I'm in this very luxurious position where I have more time with patients. And that's just a system that I've set up that works and is really, in my mind, the only way in the current landscape of healthcare to be able to practice medicine the way I was trained to and the way I want to and the way I can actually help people. But, you know, I've been advocating for a long time and including in a recent opinion piece that we really need to re-envision two things. One, we need people individually to realize what it means to be healthy. It's not just not getting COVID. It's not just the number on the scale. It's about our everyday experience of health and well-being. Number two, I hope that our healthcare system at this watershed moment where we are realizing how vulnerable we are as a population, mentally and physically, really restructures itself so that we are delivering people better healthcare, where mental and physical health are woven together, where every American has a primary care home, a place for problem solving and not just gatekeeping. But I may be dead, Trisha and Dora, before that is the standard of care, but I can keep talking about it. And that's actually why I've been doing this newsletter for 15 months is to try to help people more than just my patients one at a time to help a broader public understand a little more nuance, a little more fact to get through the day because 80 million Americans, probably more now, do not have a primary care doctor. And if they do, they don't often have a relationship where they can trust that person. And then we're being deluged with information overload. And so one of the reasons I've been doing this newsletter on COVID and sort of general health and well-being is to kind of help people navigate this very complex time and to basically also put facts in the driver's seat and take fear out of the driver's seat. That newsletter was so helpful. As you said, everyone was asking you questions. Is that why then you made the newsletter about COVID and about the facts about COVID? Because it's incredible. If you can talk to us about how your viewpoint of life for you and your patients was shifted during COVID. The newsletter started out of necessity when in March, 2020, remember the hair on fire days of COVID-19, when I was following in real time, the same stuff you guys were following trying to digest all this information and answer the phone as fast as I could. Patients were calling, what should I do? What test? I have a cough. I've got a cold. You know, should I stay in, wipe down the doorknobs? What do I do? So I started writing this newsletter just to my patients to help people get through the day, to provide real-time fact-based information and guidance on what to do. And then it started catching on and more people started subscribing. And now I think I have 13,000 subscribers. That's awesome. I know, it's amazing. It's so fun. And I've been basically just since March, 2020, putting out a newsletter twice a week to help people manage COVID, but sort of broader health issues because ultimately COVID lays bare a lot of the things we need to think about more broadly in health. So I'm talking about everything from anxiety and fear and the role it plays in our life to taking care of your basic biological needs, like eating three meals a day, exercising and moving, prioritizing sleep, relating to other people. And so it's been really fun. I've been able to write then, I've written, I think, five opinion pieces in the Atlantic and Washington Post and other outlets trying to, again, take what I've learned over the last 20 years and share it with more people who unfortunately don't have access to healthcare. And I don't claim to know everything. Just ask my teenagers. <laughs> I, I don't know everything. And so I don't recommend anybody just read my newsletter for their medical advice. I don't have any agenda here. Like I'm not getting paid for it. I'm not attached to a political ideology. It's really about facts science, and the kind of universality of the human condition. And maybe helping people prepare for the next pandemic. That's right. Because I think of this pandemic as a crisis of a virus and a parallel pandemic of mental health and crisis. So there are a number of pandemics we need to prepare for. One of them is the mental health issues that we're seeing play out in the news. I'm seeing it play out in my patients, but 
diseases of despair were rampant before the pandemic. Depression, anxiety, suicide, opiate epidemic. Then you put COVID-19 on top of that. You put lighter fluid on the grill, so to speak, of despair. And here we are. Kids have been isolated. Families have been under siege. We've all been exhausted and wired and tired from being vigilant about this one threat. Now, however, that we've been vaccinated, most of us have, and hopefully more and more of us will be, and we watch the case rates plummet, we watch the death and hospitalization rates plummet, it's time to take a hard right turn in our internal narratives about what we need to be thinking about to be healthy. It's also time to take a hard right turn in the public space and the narrative about what's next. And what's next is hopefully thinking about health in a broader way and prioritizing individual health with a primary care doctor as a teammate and reinventing healthcare so that people have access to the things they need. So what you're saying is, yeah, let's just become healthy, mind and body. It's and then, that. And then once the pandemic comes, well, okay, we're here, it's happening, but how do we get through it rather than maybe be taken out by it in a way? That's right. You know, what's interesting is some of the people who've done the best, so to speak, in the pandemic in my patient population are people who've done trauma therapy already, or they had a kid with cancer or they have been dealing with chronic illness, you know, for years and years and years, they already had the A, expectations that things don't go the way we want them to all the time. And B, they've been living with uncertainty and they've had to get comfortable with it. And C, they've done the work and they've gathered the toolkit to manage uncertainty because ultimately, you know, COVID isn't going away. It's going to be with us for a long, long time. It's impossible to eradicate it, eliminate it. So we have to learn to be comfortable, all of us now, with threats. And there are threats to our existence everywhere we look. We just haven't always looked at them as carefully as we have this particular threat. That's so true. Doro, I'm thinking here, God, yeah, you make so much sense, Lucy. Yes. So Lucy, what about children in COVID? And is it safe for children to return to the classroom? You're probably seeing lots of patients who are worried about their children. Absolutely. So this is what I'm telling my patients who have kids who are 11 and under. The 11 and unders are the ones who are not yet eligible for the vaccine. I'm telling them this. First of all, the fact of the matter is COVID-19 luckily spares kids in general from the worst outcomes, death and hospitalization. That's not to say it hasn't killed tragically somewhere between three and 400 children in the United States. And that's three to 400 children that didn't have to be lost. And that is absolutely tragic. But in general, COVID-19 in a healthy child is either asymptomatic or a mild respiratory illness like a cold. Most of the kids who've been hospitalized or sadly have died from COVID-19 are kids who've had underlying health conditions. So those kids, of course, need to be more cautious. But in general, kids are relatively spared from the severe outcomes from COVID. Number two, as adults are immunized and as case rates dropped and as COVID is just not in the air we breathe as much, kids are protected indirectly. In other words, when you and I have been vaccinated, we are not going to get COVID ourselves, most likely. We're also not likely to transmit the virus to other people. So when kids are surrounded by more vaccinated people and then the virus is just sort of losing steam in our communities, kids just aren't going to be exposed to it as much. And then last, we do know so much about the virus and how to mitigate risk for high risk people. They may need to still mask inside. But I personally think that in the fall, kids should be able to go back to school unrestricted, wear a mask if they want to or need to because of underlying medical conditions. But particularly when case rates are low and hospitalizations are low, 
And when kids need school for their social emotional health and of course for learning, and because the mental health devastation on kids, particularly teenage girls, has been so extraordinary and is only at the tip of the iceberg, you know, we really need to make sure kids are resuming normalcy. Because you hear people say when I'm talking about little children, oh, they're so resilient and they wear masks and they just have taken to it. And this, But is that really true? I mean, it sounds like it's not true, obviously, with the teenage girls. But I mean, I think it depends on the person, of course, right? There are certainly kids who are pandemic proof and who, who haven't minded it. There are kids, there are even adults who maybe have benefited from more time at home or more time inside. So, of course, there's nuance here, and this is where the pediatricians are the backbone of family's health. But in general, kids' natural habitat is school. And masking kids when it's not rooted in science does more harm than good. Take an individual kid, and sure, there certainly are kids who have done fine, but there are lots of kids who don't even know what they're missing, right? And their parents, I think, who are so well intended and want to keep their kids safe, but are also not realizing that. Keeping kids safe includes having them in school and relating to their peers and seeing the facial expressions of their friends and their teachers. I mean, the kids with disabilities, for example, the kids who have speech and language delay or autistic kids, masking them when the risk is so low of COVID-19 and all the teachers are vaccinated just doesn't make sense. And it really, really breaks my heart. Right. It just makes it so much worse. And as you said, if the mental health is not strong, then the body and the physical health begins to take a toll. When I come in, if we come in as a patient, how are you different? I hear that you say that we have more time. You talk to us more, but what markers are you looking for? Are you really interested in inflammation and how that plays a part? Can you walk us through what you look for and how you would guide us as a patient or as a teammate to a healthy lifestyle? It's a great question. So I love data. I try to practice evidence-based medicine rooted in science, but there are a lot of parts of the human condition we can't measure in blood. We do check your blood work, right? We need to look at your cholesterol, your markers of inflammation, your organ system tests, your diabetes screening tests, you know, all those sort of standard lab tests that are relevant. But to me, that is only one small component of your health. So for someone who has high cholesterol, for example, I'm interested not only in what they eat, but I'm interested in their genetics and I'm interested in their relationship to food. So for example, my patient who has high cholesterol I saw this week she has been under so much stress because of working a busy job, managing kids on Zoom school, you know, all of the COVID awfulness that she's been late night eating and snacking, not sleeping too well, and just not feeling like herself, not exercising as much. So her cholesterol is high. So my job isn't to say, let's put you on Lipitor, is to say, let's work on thinking about how to reduce your cholesterol by carving out more brain space to the extent that's possible, right? Cutting things off your calendar taking away non-essential media inputs, finding ways to practice calm. The way I think about patients is that patients are the integrated sum of different quadrants, if you will. Their data is one part, their nutrition is another part, and nutrition I define broadly as like inputs. So everything from kale and quinoa to cigarettes, marijuana, alcohol. Not that those are all the same thing, obviously. Um, and then I think about people's body mechanics. We all have one skeleton to drive us through life. You can't trade in your skeleton like you can your Honda. Thinking about the skeletal health, your balance, your coordination, your old knee injury from high school, your low back pain from sitting at a desk, all of that matters because ultimately we need to keep that car on the road and we need to keep those tires rotated to keep you moving because movement is good for everything from dementia to diabetes. And then the final thing is the mental health but it all connects, right? So if you're anxious and distressed and you're overeating, 
then maybe you gain weight and then your hip goes out and then your hip pain causes you to have high cholesterol because you're overeating. So at the end of the day, it's very simple. It's just about time and a relationship and helping people connect the dots and using your experience and the data in front of us and the person in front of us to make a plan to go from point A to point B. It does take time. And again, like I think in the United States, we have so much data on people and not enough care. People are walking around with sleep trackers, Fitbits, Weight Watchers <laughs> apps. They're tracking their trackers. Yeah. We don't have a human being in the middle to help integrate it and find out, so what? And so where does this matter? Where can we move the needle in places where you are going to be and feel and live longer? Just someone to listen. Validation is huge, right? Medicine should be the place where people are fully seen and heard. And beyond that, it's a place where people should think about where they are now in their health and where they want to go. And let's think about a realistic, structured plan that is sustainable to get you to those places that you want to be. And if it's lose 10 pounds, okay, great. I'm not going to put you on a diet. I'm not going to tell you to do keto. I'm not going to tell you to do intermittent fasting. We're going to talk about your life. And we're going to talk about how to make realistic, sustainable changes for the long term. If your goal is to leave an abusive marriage where you drink too much to kind of self-soothe uncomfortable feelings, then we need to think about how to work on that. Look, I'm not everybody's psychiatrist, therapist, mother, and doctor. I send people to the appropriate places, like either the nutritionist or the divorce attorney. (laughs) But it depends on the person. We talk a lot about bio-individuality, right? That everybody is different. Every body is different and every mind is different. So really it's sort of figuring out what works best for you. And I think how you talked about being a team member or a partner with your patient, it sounds like that's really important to you. Well, it is because the last thing I should and want to do is sort of peer down my nose and tell people, you know, do this because I said so. I am fully aware that I don't know everything. I have some medical knowledge and experience that my patients may not have, but I've never lived in the shoes that my patients have lived in. And I don't assume anything about anybody. I am here to give you my medical opinion and impression and to give you thoughts about what you may want to do to be healthier. But ultimately, my job is to arm people with facts and information so they can execute themselves. The goal is really for people to have agency and to feel like they have the tools that they need every day. You know, whether they succeed every day and those health goals is a different story, but having tools and resources to execute on the things you need to do to make yourself healthier physically and mentally is the goal. Who does that every day though? I mean, I don't do that every day. I'm human too, right? Like I sometimes drink too much champagne or I sleep too late or you don't want to know all my dirty laundry. I'm just saying that, (laughs) but I'm human too. So I don't claim to be this sort of like pinnacle of health. I just am here to tell you a bit of my knowledge, to give you some facts and information and some guidance and to support you along the way on your journey. That's so true. And it's so great to sort of, as we talk about, build your community, you know, and choose people pretty wisely to be in your tribe and having a doctor to be part of that, that thinks like you, that is such a gift as you move through life. I really do believe the phrase that it takes a village. And I think, you know, like when I think about raising kids, we live two blocks away from my parents. My kids are very close with their friends, of course, but they have coaches. I mean, I think it takes a village to raise a child. I also think it takes a village to be human in general. Like I wouldn't claim that I do everything myself. I have trusted friends. I've trusted colleagues. I've done therapy intermittently throughout my life. I have my own doctor. Like I don't try to be my own doctor. Figuring out who you trust, having a good team, 
and kind of recognizing who your allies and supports are, who also will tell you things you don't want to hear. Right. Is really, really important for your health. So true. You know, Dora, I was thinking about our conversation actually just yesterday and I shared it with a couple other people and we were just talking, talking. And then Dora said something that really struck me. And Dora, I don't even think I said this to you, but it was like, you know what we have today enough with me worrying about that extra five pounds enough with me worrying about whatever. What about just enjoying right now? What about just accepting who I am right now and appreciating that, you know, we did make it out of COVID at least today, not make it out of, but we are in a better place. And how can we just sort of congratulate ourselves now? I thought a lot about our conversation yesterday, Doral, <laughs> and from the gratitude painting that we shared on our Instagram yeah. that her brother did of what Dora was feeling lots of gratitude for. Anyway, I just think gratitude is probably something I feel that you're talking about a lot. Yes, I- absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up because you know, these things are kind of buzzwords, right? Like yeah. gratitude and, you know, it's like the thing you'll see on a mug at yeah. TV Max. And like, wait a minute, is that just a saying? You know what I mean? But gratitude causes a healthy chemical reaction in our bodies. It helps us release adrenaline. It helps us be in the present. It helps us drill down into the things that give us meaning and purpose, which ultimately is healthy. The other thing you're talking about, Trisha, is self-compassion. We are so hard on ourselves. I am totally a victim of this. Like I am the worst boss of myself. And I know that. And so, you know, it's like I try to teach my kids, ask for help, be kind to yourself, say no, even if it's hard. Like you need to sometimes carve out brain space and emotional space to take care of yourself. So self-compassion is yet another thing that's probably on a cover of a journal at Target, but (laughs) but there's a reason for it. There's a reason for it, right? It's like being kind to ourselves. We are so hard on ourselves especially as women, right? It's like, we have to lose that five pounds. We didn't reach out to that friend. We weren't a good friend when she went through a hard time. We haven't worked hard enough. Oh, we should be nicer to our spouses. And oh, every problem our kids have is all our fault. Absolutely. (laughs) Acceptance is a good thing and kindness to ourselves, especially as we have gotten through this horrific time where I think we forget how brutal it's been for different people in many, many different ways. But I think it's a moment right now, a watershed moment where we can really step back and say, gosh, I got through that. I'm getting through it. I live through every hard time. Like, first of all, how did I do that? And then what are the things I've learned about myself that I can take into my post-pandemic chapter? And maybe some of that is compassion. Oh, I think that's really good advice. Knowing that we're all bio-individual, but that living longer and better is the goal. What are the top five things we can do to do that? I love that question. Okay, so the top five things we could do to live better are, number one, have a primary care doctor who pays attention and provides a space that's non-judgmental where you can bring your mental and physical health together, where you can talk about stress, anxiety, mood, relationship to food, relationship to alcohol, relationship to your spouse, relationship to work, You can talk about sleep, all those things that inform your everyday existence. And that's number one. Number two, prune your inputs. So we have so many inputs coming at us. Like I have all these newsletters, right? That give me like real time medical alerts. We have our phones, we have our computers, we have all of our devices. We have friends and family and people who want our attention and want more of us. We have work obligations. All of those things that we are inputting and feeding into ourselves, into our brains, take energy emotionally and physically. So we need to be careful 
not to overload ourselves and bring your locus of control to an internal place where you feel like you are in the driver's seat of your health and well-being. We all have obligations. We all have to do things. There are things we have to do we don't want to do. Like, I'd love to be like, no, I can't take the trash out. No, I'm not going to go to work today. <laughs> you know, like saying no is a luxury sometimes, right? But if you can say, look, I've gotten the request to do these five things, but I realistically can only do three and you have the luxury of making choices, maybe you only do the three. Maybe you do one. Just set realistic expectations and prune your inputs. Number three, take a hard look at your mental health. People take care of their cars and their teeth more than they take care of their mental health. People go into the shop to get their tires rotated and the oil changed. They go to get their teeth cleaned more than they do maintenance on their mental health. So taking a good, honest look in the mirror, thinking about your level of anxiety, because again, we all have anxiety. Where does it stick? Maybe you should be more anxious that there are problems at work that are a result of your anger management challenges, and you need to worry about that more. Maybe you're worrying too much about something you cannot control. You also need to think about moods and how they affect your behaviors and your habits. You need to think about your relationship, as I've said before today, relationship to food. Are you someone who restricts calories? Do you overeat? Do you have an emotional relationship with food? Are you someone who, I don't know anybody who does this, but who only eats when they're hungry, they don't eat when they're not hungry. And they <laughs> perfect balance meals every single day. I, know. I mean, it's everybody so nice. has an emotional relationship to food. So think about it. What's your relationship to alcohol, cigarettes, marijuana, other substances? Like those are mental health phenomena. And then what is your relationship to yourself? How much do you value your own body and mind? And how much are you investing in taking care of those things? So that's one, two, three. Four is the sort of kindness, self-compassion, acceptance piece where we just need to give ourselves a break. We are so hard on ourselves, particularly as women, men too, but I'm talking to two women here. So I'll just talk about women for a second, but we are so hard on ourselves. So give ourselves a break, accept the things that are hard like the five pounds or the, my kids aren't perfect individuals because who is perfect, except that maybe you don't have the dream job or the perfect wardrobe or whatever it is, like acceptance and kindness and compassion. And then the last thing I would say is figure out ways to be present, whether it's reading a book, doing a five minute meditation, whether it's being out in nature, whether it's knitting, something that brings you into the present moment, have a couple things. Because if you break your hand and you can't knit, then maybe you need an alternative. Yeah. Find things that help bring you into the present moment. Ultimately, we spend a lot of time fretting about the past and worrying about the future, and we aren't living in the moment. And that is the birthplace of anxiety, depression, and just malaise when we are not present. And that's where people just rev the engine of their blood pressure and their cholesterol and their blood sugar, and they aren't sleeping and are gravitating towards alcohol and substances they wish they hadn't had. So again, that's a long-winded answer to your question of what five things, but those are my five. <laughs> They're brilliant. They really Very are. Brilliant. And we will have those in our show notes. <laughs> yes, they're sure. Well, Dr. Lucy McBride, we are so thankful you came and joined us today. And we just admire what you're doing and how you're bringing all of this to primary care, which is so important. And just thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been delightful talking to you. I love what you guys have done. You're making a difference by sharing information and ideas with a wide public and it's meaningful and it's making a difference. Thanks so much. And hopefully you'll come back and join us again. I love that. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>